0: Okay, so let's go on to your case, David. Okay, this was a 42-year-old man who presented with a focal motor seizure of his right upper extremity and was found on imaging to have a non-enhancing left parietal mass. So he underwent a biopsy. The pathology was a low-grade oligodendroglioma, 1P intact.
1: So he had a low-grade lesion. What about the chromosome findings?
0: When we look at oligodendrogliomas, and these data have been sorted out most definitively for patients with grade 3 gliomas, but patients with grade 3 gliomas who have chromosomal deletion of 1P and 19Q have both a better prognosis and better responses to either radiation or chemotherapy. So they just behave a lot better And nowadays, those patients are being treated separately. They're being tested differently or separately in clinical trials. We happened also at our institution to be getting those chromosomal markers on our patients with low grades. There's some data in the literature that 1p19q codeletion in low-grade gliomas can be a helpful predictor. But the data in those patients is a lot less firm, I would say. So this patient went on a clinical trial which randomized patients between radiation alone and radiation plus chemotherapy, the chemotherapy being PCV, which stands for procarbazine, CCNU, and vincristine. So he was randomized to the control arm with radiation therapy alone, finished his therapy, did well for five years, and after that time developed enhancement which was felt to be indicative of upgrading to an anaplastic lesion. So at that time, he began therapy with timazolamide on a daily times five schedule. He received nine cycles, was stable, but then developed a new onset of expressive aphasia. So maybe I'll stop there and ask Jim what he'd
1: be thinking about at this point and what kind of trials would a patient at this point maybe be eligible for? You know, we always try to re-biopsy I do think pathology
2: is critical to move our field forward. So if I can get tissue, get it to our tumor bank, I always ask our neurosurgeon, can you do that? And usually he says, sure. So So did you get
1: tissue here?
0: We did not. We had a discussion with the patient and we always have this discussion and I think there's some amount of philosophy to it. That is, should we treat the patient as if they have an upgraded lesion or should we actually try to biopsy them? really solely, I think, for the purpose of a patient being eligible for a clinical trial. That is, if a patient is not eligible for a gross total resection. If the patient's eligible for a gross total resection, which this patient was not because it was in their speech area, then that's a whole different issue. And I think therapeutically, that's a good thing to do. But a biopsy alone, in general, we do not do it unless a patient is really pushing for it. And wants to know, because at least right now, we're not sure how to manage that patient differently, even though academically it'd be nice to know. Quick question,
1: what kind of morbidity do you see? Where can't you do a biopsy? What part of the brains? You can do a stereotactic or needle biopsy really anywhere in the brain. And what's the morbidity, any morbidity with it? The morbidity of a biopsy is bleeding, which
2: is two to three out of a hundred, and Any neurological deficits that would arise from the biopsy come from bleeding. It's a very small piece. Passing the catheter, even through an eloquent area of the brain, generally does not cause any
1: durable deficits. And we're hearing more and more about biopsies in other tumors, breast cancer, looking at HER2 and ER again, even colon and lung cancer. So again putting that issue aside assuming let's say there was a biopsy how would you be thinking through treatment and research options if the biopsy showed high grade tumor then that
2: opens up a lot of different protocol options so that's really the So what prox- would he be eligible for
1: at your place with a patient like this?
2: Right now, we have probably 25 trials for
1: recurrent. Really? Yeah. 25 trials? Yeah. We kind of had
2: a couple-year period where most of them were advanced and based. Now, much more of them are small molecule-based. But I think we really have to get to the question of after VEGF inhibitors fail, what other pathways upregulate? And if we don't keep... Going through these clinical trials, we're not going to get to that point.
1: Now, he at this point hadn't had any VEGF inhibition, or had he? That's correct. He had not. So what about off-protocol options for him? I do feel awkward,
2: given a VEGF inhibitor in the absence of a documented higher-grade tumor. So I'd be okay. You got a biopsy high grade high grade tumor off protocol I think chemotherapy plus avastin would be the treatment of choice which chemo either VP 16 in this situation or CPT 11 would be the two we would talk to What about bevacizumab without chemo? I think that's a very reasonable option. I think our community has been somewhat misled by the brain trial that showed that chemotherapy plus bevacizumab had a higher response rate and had a higher median progression-free survival, but equivalent overall survival to bevacizumab alone. And the reason that that is is because the patients who were on bevacizumab alone, when they progressed, they continued their bevacizumab, and chemotherapy was added to it. So I think the lesson from that trial is continue the bevacizumab. So I do think chemotherapy adds a little bit to Avastin versus Avastin alone. Why don't you bring us up to date on what happened with the patient?
0: Okay. So at that time, because the patient was quite symptomatic and had now increased enhancement and edema extending into the left temporal lobe, we did recommend can bevacizumab. So we treated the patient. The patient's speech did improve substantially. The MRI looked better. But By cycle four, there really had been a progression of myelosuppression, nausea, vomiting, some fatigue. The nausea and vomiting would last for two days after treatment, despite the use of H3 receptor antagonists. What about imaging? The imaging was clearly better. There was still a decrease in enhancement, decrease in edema. So from that point of view, the patient was doing well. We stopped the arena tea can The patient continued on the bevacizumab. No bowel problems, diarrhea? No, not much to speak of, no. The patient's symptoms and blood counts improved. We think generally there was certainly an improvement in quality of life once we did that. The patient was maintained free of progression for five additional cycles before progressing. So I think the point of it, of bringing up this case is to raise the question of, are we accomplishing something by adding a arenatecan to bevacizumab? I think those questions are still out there. And again, in our
1: renal program, we had this raging controversy about Bev with interferon and the same thing. Do they really need it? That's what's causing at least the quality of life issues. And
0: that answer hasn't really come up yet. What happened
1: subsequently?
0: So subsequently, the patient deteriorated quite rapidly, as unfortunately we see with our folks who progress on Bevacizumab, and the patient ended up going to hospice.
1: And we want you to kind of go through what's up in terms of Bev with
0: glioblastoma. Sure. Bevacizumab in glioblastomas was first reported upon by Virginia Stark Vance in Dallas, and at that time, Bevacizumab came with TCAN because it was extrapolated from the colon cancer data. So she reported very impressive results at the 2005 World Federation of Neuro-Oncology meeting.
1: Jim, you mentioned HIF-1. And again, you know, oncologists hear these things kind of popping out. We heard about HIF-1 with renal cell. What is HIF-1 and how does it relate to angiogenesis and GBM? It's hypoxia-inducible factor 1,
2: and when an area becomes hypoxic, HIF-1 goes up that stimulates the production of VEGF. There's suggestive data that the topoisomerase 1 inhibitors will inhibit HIF-1, so you may get a more potent antiangiogenic effect with the combination of a topo-1 inhibitor and a VEGF inhibitor.
3: Patrick? I think GBMs are some of the most vascular tumors in the body, so they make very high levels of VEGF. And I think one of the whole issues about this class of drugs is whether there is a true anti-tumor effect from bevacizumab and VEGF receptor inhibitors or whether a lot of the benefit is more from the reduction in the edema inside a closed cranium. There was that really interesting study published in JCO from Rakesh Jain at MGH suggesting that with Sediranib, most of the benefit is in reducing the edema rather than a true anti-tumor effect. And I
1: guess we should clarify sidirinib as a TKI, and what exactly do we think it hits?
3: It's a pan-VEGF receptor inhibitor. But having said that, I think we all have patients who are treated with bevacizumab who are a year or sometimes two years out, and it's hard to imagine that just an anti-edema effect produces that kind of benefit. So there probably is some anti-tumor effect as well.
0: Can you kind of talk more about the clinical trials we have in BEV? Sure. So the first set of trials was done in patients with recurrent glioblastoma. After the initial report, a couple of studies headed up by Dr. Redenberg came out and documented response rates up to 60% and six-month progression-free survivals of 40 to 50%. So this was certainly very impressive given our historical data where response rates are typically 10% or less. So this led to a number of other trials. There was a study initiated by Dr. Klausi and a group that looked now at single-agent bevacizumab compared to bevacizumab plus arenatecan. This was a randomized phase two trial. And at least the early data show that with combination therapy, there is perhaps a little better response rate, a little better progression-free survival. But there's, at least from what we know, there does not seem to be a benefit in regards to overall survival. So I guess my take on that is that we really don't know of any chemotherapy adding to bevacizumab. There have been a number of other combination studies that have been reported using multiple cytotoxic and other targeted therapies. And I think the bottom line on all of those is that, and these are all phase two trials, they're interesting, but they do not appear to have a striking improvement compared to what we think of seeing with Bevacizumab alone.
1: How much toxicity did you see in the trial by bringing an erinitekin in this patient population?
0: Yeah, so probably the most significant
4: finding was that about 15% of patients had to come off study in the combination arm. Whereas in the single arm with bevacizumab alone, it was single digit, somewhere around 4%. So there was significant toxicity associated with What was the reason, the, the
1: major problems, and the reasons for coming off treatment?
4: Typically, the adverse events associated with erinitekin. From the beginning observations from Stark Vance to the evaluations that Jim did at Duke, it was unclear what was really the major driver. And I think giving bevacizumab alone and seeing the same kind of effect that we see with bevacizumab and arenatekin tell us that bevacizumab is the major driver here. The other thing is it's unusual, if not, I think now we're coming up with a couple of other tumor types where we're seeing this, but for the most part, Bevacizumab's benefit was not seen alone in other solid tumors. This is a setting where it's clearly seen alone. And that means there's a unique opportunity here with regard to VEGF inhibition and glioblastoma.
1: That's why I brought up the renal and ovary, because they see that kind of thing. Right. But right now, and we'll get into this more in terms of non protocol management, Tracy. If you're going to use Bev outside of a protocol setting in a recurrent situation, are you generally going to use chemo? Or are you going to use Renatekin? Or are there times you'll just do Bev alone?
5: I think that we don't know the answer and certainly do it both ways. I think for older, fragile patients, often we use Bevacizumab alone.
6: Tom? Our personal approach, in fact, is to use the combination. We have a feeling that the patients that we treat, we see better long-term responses in the combination patients. So there are a number of other strategies besides withdrawing the can completely. So do you Sometimes use irenatecan? We or? do, we do. And in the setting of the asthenia, which is certainly seen, one strategy is actually to alter the interval of treatment. So rather than giving it every two weeks, Give it every four weeks. And that actually can maintain some patients on therapy with still a good sustained response. Yeah, yeah.
1: And in the renal trials, they could drop the dose down, 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 right. and they still were seeing benefit. And they felt, I mean, it's hard to say, that there was something being added by the chemo. Right. Any other the recurrent trials you want to talk about?
6: Well, there is the RTOG trial that's now been completed, which is comparing bevacizumab with irenatecan to bevacizumab and alternate schedule Temadar. Results have not yet been reported on that. That's the 0625. That's a recurrent disease? That's a recurrent disease. That's
1: interesting. What do you think it's going to show?
6: Well, I think it's going to obviously reconfirm the benefit of bevacizumab, and I don't think it's actually going to answer the question about bevolome versus bev plus chemo, but I think it'll give some good safety data, tolerance data for alternate chemo schedules.
1: Yeah, I was going to say, it sounds like it needs a third arm.
6: Right. Given the fact, however, though, that we know that bevacizumab patients do have this pattern of failure, it's not a curative therapy. I think the combination strategy is ultimately going to be shown. How we define which patients those should be and which agents should be used is an unanswered question just yet.
0: There have been a few single-agent bevacizumab studies reported recently. Chrysal and the group at the NCI reported a Phase two single arm study in which they saw response rates of about thirty five percent, progression free survival. Resist thirty five percent. Yes, although no, there they was use McDonald. F- right. No, they use well, modified, modified lemon criteria. Modified right.
4: lemon
1: is what 11%. percent shrinkage do you need for a response?
4: You need to say that looks pretty good. Really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah.
3: There's,
1: There's not a number.
4: But you know what's that? No, there isn't a number.
1: Really? And no, how do you know. differentiate edema resolution, Patrick, from tumor regression?
3: So, all the old criteria don't look at edema. They just look at contrast enhancement. And hmm. that's one of the big problems right now, is that the old criteria are obsolete. So, there's an effort to try and propose a new criteria that looks both at the contrast enhancement as well as the non-enhancing tumor.
1: Do you see resist type? shrinkage of tumor? Of the enhancing tumor. With Bev, yeah. Absolutely. The
6: question is whether that's a real anti-tumor effect, and that's the danger. We've always assumed that the contrast-enhancing margin is the tumor margin, and that change is a reflection of the disease burden. And in fact, given the fact that Bev has this effect on the permeability, that is really the cause of contrast enhancement, it's almost a false measure in the setting of that drug.
1: Interesting. So you want to continue on in terms of the data sets we have?
0: Yes. Let me move on to some of the trials that have been done Upfront, given the data that looked quite promising for patients with recurrence, there have now been several studies for which there are early data in the upfront setting. So these are studies that look at our standard backbone of radiation temozolamide and have added bevacizumab to it, and a number of those are ongoing. But one of the ones that's been reported, again by Dr. Vredenberg in the group, has shown at least very interesting early. Data, and have proven the fact that at least this type of regimen is able to be added to radiation temozolamide. So the combination is feasible. The group at Duke has extended that to a study that looks at radiation temozolamide, followed by post-radiation temozolamide with both bevacizumab and can. So that, again, has shown that the regimen, the combination is feasible. There are no obvious unexpected toxicities from putting these drugs together. Some of the concerns that have arisen have been with wound healing. So these patients have undergone surgery. They may be on steroids. They've gotten radiation therapy. And I think for the people out in the community, it's going to be very important if this is used, and I don't think it should be off-study, but if it's going to be used in the upfront setting, then first of all, the wounds have to at least visually be verified to be intact. But even in that setting, there can still be late wound dehiscence. And so that's a very important factor to look at and to be careful
1: of. John, we, and again, in different tumors here, about six weeks between surgery and Bev, is that kind of the way it works here too, or how do you approach it? Yes, right, at least six weeks. And what about bowel perforation, of course, intracranial bleeding?
0: Right, bowel perforation happens occasionally, certainly less than 5% of the time. Intracranial hemorrhage occurs also a few percent of the time, and most of the time when it does occur, what we see is small, what we call petechial hemorrhages that are visible on MRI but are not symptomatic, there then is a small subgroup of patients with intracranial hemorrhage who actually have symptomatic intracranial hemorrhage. And of course, that's a very bad thing. So is there a sense
1: that the risk, because of course, bleeding can occur without treatment, any sense about how much is from the BEV or if at all? Really
0: not. It appears that the incidence with BEV or without BEV is pretty similar. So I think that is a toxicity that's been seen in clinical trials, multiple trials, that would not be considered to be a deal-breaker in terms of offering it to these patients.
1: Can you kind of just go through a little bit more about what the design of that study was and what they saw, and particularly the comparisons they made with, I guess, historical controls?
0: Sure. These are the upfront studies. Radiation temozolomide with Bevacizumab either started at the time of initial treatment There was a different study that looked at it, given only at the time of post-radiation timazolamide. Again, the study from Duke that's added arenatecan to that. And the patients overall have done very well. Those, at least in one study, who have had MGMT promoter methylation, it's about 40% in the UCLA group, They appear to do better, as we would otherwise expect. Better in general or more benefit from BEV? We don't know that yet. Their overall survival, progression-free survival, appears to be better. But at the moment, we do not know the contribution of the BEV to that benefit. That'll actually be, and I think Dr. Vredenberg will talk about the RTOG study that's going to be opening up, which will stratify, according to, among other things, MGMT methylation status, and that may give us an indicator as to whether there's any interaction between MGMT methylation and bevacizumab benefit, if there is any.
1: I have to say, when they showed the comparisons, I think there were two databases or historical controls. It didn't look like, to me, there was that much benefit to it, actually. Maybe I'm not seeing to this adding correctly. BEV
0: up front? Well, yeah, I think we're really not going to know anything until we have these large phase three trials, the RTOG study that's going to be starting up, another study based more in Europe. So these two trials are going to hopefully answer this question definitively. So, standard upfront therapy with or without bevacizumab.
1: Is there any issue, Tib, in terms of the duration of treatment? Obviously, this got way out on the table with the colon study where they showed that benefit while the patient was treated that kind of dropped right off as soon as the bev was stopped. You think that applies? In the upfront setting? Yeah, that was I magic. think we don't
4: know quite yet. The one thing I will say about at least the UCLA study is the historical control, 75% had progressed, 25 didn't. Of that 75%, two-thirds received bevacizumab at recurrence. Mm, Right. So this is where we start. And the median survival then was 21 months, which is different than what we've seen. And this Mm. is the control. Now, what we did see in the treatment arm, and in group 5-6, there was a significant difference. That group that's 5-6, they're older, less resections, and their Karnofsky performance status is lower. This is a group that appears on our first glance in a phase two study with historical control
6: seems to be standing out. Tom? Well, I think the important point is that the 5-6 group are often even excluded from active clinical trials. I think there's a subpopulation of patients that never get treated very aggressively, and this may well be a a treatment option that's providing real clinical benefit. I mean, one can argue whether it's an anti-edema effect or whether it's a true anti-tumor effect. At the very least, we know that there's perceived clinical benefit and there is quality of life benefit. And it's with good safety. And
1: five six relates to what?
6: So this is the uh, RPA classification done by the RTOG, looking at a number of important prognosis factors and classifying patients. So age, performance status, extent of resection. Hmm. So these are the sicker patients, Yeah, these basically. are the more prognostically poor patients. But the point is, is that this is the more generic GBM population as opposed to cherry-picking the young, very motivated, really good functional patients who really do well. There are now inklings that, in fact, we have something to offer to the older folks. Interesting. David?
0: One of the interesting things that came out of actually two studies is that there appeared to be more benefit in the older patient groups, which is something that we would not have expected. So the study out of the NCI for patients that were older than 53, and I'm not sure how they came up with that cutoff, but the progression-free survival was 30 weeks in the older group, 11 weeks in the younger group. And then the data set out of UCLA showed a similar benefit where patients over 55 actually did have an improved overall and progression-free survival compared to their historical controls, while the patients younger than 55 actually did not. And one of the things that may relate to that from the biologic point of view is there are these different subtypes of GBMs, one of which is called the mesenchymal subtype that appears to be typical in older patients, and that subtype also has higher levels of VEGF and VEGF receptor. So there may be some biologic correlate with the older age patients, and I think the implication for docs out there in the community is that older patients really should be considered candidates all other things being equal, they should definitely be considered candidates to receive Bevacizumab.
1: Any upper age limit? No. What's your take, Tracy, on the data that we have right now in the early setting? And again, an oncologist looks at this and we see so many data sets that are marginal. For example, the Cetuximab lung data with a five-week improvement in survival, and yet it is a benefit. But in this situation, you don't have phase three data. So it's your best guess. What is your best guess?
5: Well, I think Tim hit the high points on the UCLA trial. Simply put, we need a control arm before we know whether this is going to be beneficial for patients in terms of survival and progression-free survival. Unfortunately, we don't have very good measures of quality of life, and that's problematic because I think a big impact of this class of agents is on edema, is on neurologic symptoms, but we just don't measure those well.
1: So, Jim, do most patients who receive bevacizumab with or without chemo progress while they're still on treatment or after? The median time to progression is in the four to five month range, so absolutely. And generally, is that the accepted approach in terms of off-protocol therapy continue until progression? That's very controversial.
2: We've kind of developed our set of guidelines that if the patient progresses within the first three months on Bev, stop because I think there is some concern about a more invasive phenotype, and those patients clearly have not benefited. If they're on it for longer than six months, then we will continue it at the time of
1: progression. But it's an area we really need data. What do you think, Patrick, about, I hate to bring up the colon data, but it was right on target about this issue. They had already seen some data in metastatic disease suggesting continuation on progression added some benefit the bright tumor registry study and then norm Walmock presents these data showing an impact during treatment do you think any of this is relevant to gbm
3: so we don't have a lot of data but we do have one small study where patients who progressed on bevacizumab at recurrence continued on bevacizumab but had the chemotherapy changed and unlike the colon cancer situation Switching the chemotherapy, it did almost nothing. So it might be slightly different in the brain. When patients recur on bevacizumab, the tumors are much more difficult to treat. And right now, there really isn't anything that can salvage these patients.
0: I think the global bottom line on all of this is that bevacizumab clearly does produce, I believe, quality of life benefits and probably some true anti-tumor effect beyond what we see with just the reduced edema. I'm excited to see what these data produce over the next couple of years, especially in the upfront setting.
1: And in terms of proteinuria, hypertension, same thing you'd expect normally?
0: That's right. And we monitor, as it does everybody, monitor their blood pressure. Oftentimes, that's probably the major thing that requires some intervention. Proteinuria has been reported, but I have to say, frankly speaking, we actually don't really check it on a routine basis. We've not seen any patients with nephrotic syndrome. I have to say it occurs, but it's a lot less on our radar as a day-to-day issue. Tom, the docs in practice talk a lot about
1: nosebleeds with Bev, minor ones, but they say very, very frequent. What right. about we'll, in GBN? We'll tell
6: the patients to expect that they might have some mild nasal staining, occasionally at the toilet as well, wiping, falling bowel movements, but seldom frank blood. And
1: occasionally you'll see a colon patient that has to go to cauterization, et cetera. You don't see that? We do not
6: see that, no.
4: I've seen it a couple times. you seen it? You <laughs> yes, frank frank blood,
6: we've seen, I think, one time. Yeah. In the setting, however, of older patients, especially those with diverticulitis, those are the ones that have had the bowel perforation. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so we've had about three or four cases hmm. like that.
1: Hmm. So Jim, are there phase three studies looking at this issue?
2: There's two large phase three trials that recently began that I think are really the most important trials in our field. Very importantly, both of them are placebo controlled, randomized trials. Both of them will have over 500 patients on them. They're slightly different in terms of how they randomize people. What's involved, the RTOG trial, they use a gene profile to stratify for risk groups as well as MGMT. Gene St- profile? Uh-huh. What profile is it? The group at MD Anderson have developed a gene profile that categorizes people as high risk, intermediate risk, and low risk. Hmm. And what's the exact treatment schema in the two trials? In the RTOG trial, the patients have their surgery. They have to be enrolled within four weeks from the time of surgery. As I said, they're stratified according to the gene profile and the MGMT methylation status.
1: What about extent resection?
2: Is that part of it? The, or mm-hmm. they have to all be completely resected? No, they don't have to all be completely resected. They're not stratified according to RPA class. It's really just those two factors. Then they start their radiation, and it's a good four weeks of radiation while the patients are undergoing their gene test as well as the MGMT methylation status. Once they get those back, then they start either the placebo or the bevacizumab, so it'll be well into the radiation therapy. So it's not really started at the beginning of radiation.
1: So they're getting the temozolomide also, and then the bev comes in once you get the data. Right. And how long is the BEV continued? In
2: that trial, both after radiation, Temidar, and either BEV or placebo are continued for 12 months. Interesting. And the other study? It's different. It's mostly a European-Canadian study. It's also placebo-controlled. They're stratified according to RPA class as well as country that they're treated in. Those patients will start the bevacizumab earlier, ideally at the time of initiation of radiation therapy. They only get six months of temozolomide after the radiation therapy. And in that trial, the placebo or bevacizumab is continued indefinitely following completion of the six months of temozolomide. So they're really asking different questions.
1: Fascinating. So Tracy, you present this trial or one of these two trials to a patient and they go, well, you know, I read all about this. Sounds really exciting. How about
5: you give me the BEV off study? (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's an important point because, so the question is, should we be giving BEV off study up front with radiation and temozolomide? In my view is we should not be doing it. There's certainly a biological rationale to think that adding an anti-VEGF agent to radiation and a cytotoxic chemotherapy drug will be beneficial, perhaps synergistic. And that might reflect around the fact that the hypoxia within the tumor is changed by an anti-VEGF agent. On the other hand, there's also some emerging evidence from preclinical models that suggest that delivery of drugs with VEGF into the matrix of the tumor may be reduced. So there are open questions about whether this will ultimately be a successful strategy or not. So I think that these patients, if they're going to go on these, what is an experimental therapy, that they should do it in the context of a clinical trial and not off clinical trial.
1: Manesh, what are your thoughts about this issue? Educated patient comes in, hey, there's not that much downside. How about if I take a shot at it off study?
5: I actually agree with what's been said that there is in fact the potential for downside and we don't really know the answers. And in the context of a potentially toxic agent, an agent that could potentially even reverse some of the benefits of therapy, and an agent that is enormously expensive and is not covered by the vast majority of third-party payers, I think, in general, it's inappropriate to use it outside the context of a clinical trial in the upfront setting.
1: So, David, maybe not that relevant to this population, but, you know, the discussant, Lee Ellis from MD Anderson of the colon study, brought up the issue of potential long-term CNS toxicity with BEV. Do we know anything about that?
0: Well, I think that many chemotherapies certainly have CNS toxicities. One of the ones that is peculiar to BEV is reversible posterior leukoencephalopathy syndrome, or RPLS. And so that's a syndrome that can occur in patients getting bevacizumab. There are other etiologies for it. But essentially what it is, is, and the, probably the most important part of the term, is that it's reversible. It's posterior... And what occurs is patients will become confused, they may have seizures, they may become ataxic or have vision problems. So really, it's a disorder of the posterior parts of the brain, the occipital lobe, the cerebellum, and it's manifested on MRI as a diffuse cortical flare abnormalities. And Do you
1: think it's generally diagnosed correctly? I mean, of course, obviously, it's more likely in the more common tumors, but particularly with GBM, how do you make the diagnosis?
0: Well, it's a radiographic diagnosis, and that's another thing where it's very important for our neuroradiologists to be up on this. For clinicians, it's extremely important to know about it because when we get to that point where a patient has neurologic deterioration while they're taking Bevacizumab, it's either progression of their disease, which is something for which our therapies are extremely limited and very often it leads to discussion about stopping all therapy and going to hospice. So it can be that, or it could be this RPLS, which actually can get better after stopping the Bev. So to make that distinction is extremely important. And I think it's very important for docs
6: to be aware of that
0: possibility.
6: Have you seen any cases of that? And do they have hypertension? Right. They're not typically associated with hypertension, although they can be. I don't think I've recognized a case. Not that I haven't seen one, Jim, but I, I haven't recognized do you think this might
1: it. be happening and we're missing it?
6: Oh, absolutely. We've had three cases.
2: All three, the outside radiologist called it marked tumor progression with wow. leptomeningeal. And it wasn't until they sent us the MRI and we talked to the family and said, this is obvious RPLS. So yes, I do think it's happening. I think people need to be aware of it.